Good day to you, my history-loving friends. Today we have a special episode for you. We're not going to talk about just a single historical marker, but in a sense, we're going to talk about all of them. We have a guest today from the Kentucky Historical Society, Mr. Jim Seaver, who is the Community Engagement Coordinator, and part of his duties also is to manage the Historical Marker Program. Welcome, Jim. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm delighted to be here, and uh, I am equally delighted that we have a podcast that is being done by somebody out there in the community who really loves seeing all the historical markers around the state. Yeah, absolutely. I love it, and I've enjoyed reading them for years and had the idea to do this podcast, so I'm glad it's going over well. Absolutely. Well, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do as the Community Engagement Coordinator? Absolutely, yes. So I am uh, Kentucky born and raised. I'm from Lexington originally, but I spent the past 18 years or so of my life living out of state. And um, I did my undergraduate work in history at the University of Kentucky. I got a master's and a Ph.D. from Indiana University in Bloomington and uh, actually divided my time between academia and the wine industry before I came back to Kentucky to work for KHS. So I'm excited to be back in the bluegrass and to be a little closer to uh, where I grew up and my family. In terms of the work that I do as the community engagement coordinator, I get to be one of the public faces and the ambassadors for this remarkable organization. So for folks who aren't too familiar with the Kentucky Historical Society, we are a state government agency that uh, kind of does all things history here in the Commonwealth. And um, a big part of my job is constituent relations. People have all sorts of history uh, interests or issues or concerns or problems that they often bring to my attention, and I get to help them kind of troubleshoot those issues, whether it's, you know, how do I take care of an old cemetery headstone or, uh, hey, the historical marker down the road for me got hit by a car, things like that, uh, I get to help out. And um, I meet some really exciting people in my line of work. It's one of my favorite things about the job. But yeah, just to very briefly summarize, I do constituent relations. I coordinate the Kentucky Historical Society's historical marker program, and I also manage our cemeteries portfolio. Awesome. Well, we certainly appreciate the work you put into it. Could you give yeah, us a, a brief history of the marker program itself? Sure. So the KHS Historical Marker Program actually traces its roots to the mid-1930s. There was a private organization in Lexington called the Historical Markers Society that formed around that time. So it's the mid-1930s, and you have this small group of local businessmen and college professors and local politicians who decide that they really want to draw attention to Kentucky's history, maybe kind of boost some tourism interest in historic sites, and help people feel a greater sense of attachment to the things that have occurred right here in our various corners of Kentucky. So the Historical Markers Society put up about uh, roughly two dozen markers, mostly clustered in the bluegrass area around Lexington. And then in 1949, that program got handed off to the state government. 
and was managed until 1962 by the Department of Highways in cooperation with the Kentucky Historical Society. And then in 1962, responsibility for the historical marker program really came home to KHS. And the 1960s experienced this colossal boom in markers across the state under the leadership of a gentleman named W.A. Wentworth. We actually have a historical marker for him not too far from where I'm located here in Frankfurt, and he is known as the father of the historical marker program. Um, Up until 1962, I think we only had about 175 markers across the state, and Mr. Wentworth ensured that about 1,000 went up after he came on board, and they stretched from one end of the state to the other. Every single county ended up with markers in it. Uh, So we're grateful to him for that. And in the years since, we've uh, kept going strong. We now have over 2,400 markers across the state, and they cover all sorts of topics. We're putting up a few new ones every year. And um, in addition to that work, one of my main responsibilities is trying to maintain the ones that uh, I've inherited from my predecessors. So Uh, I do quite a bit of liaison work with the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet. They still are very much involved in helping us to install and maintain the markers. And that is a very tall order when you have 2,400 different markers across the state. A metaphor that I often, often use to describe the work that I do is that of an air traffic controller, with every single marker being a different airplane up in the sky and uh, I'm making sure that they're all flying the way they need to, and uh, rare occasions I deal with uh, problematic situations that arise. Most often it's a situation where somebody hits one with a car and knocks it clean off the post. So um, that happens a little more frequently than I would like it to, but uh, yeah, I'm the guy who gets that phone call whenever that happens. Well, that analogy of a traffic controller, air traffic controller, is impressive when you're considering uh, 2,400 of them at one time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it can be a little stressful sometimes, but I have a wonderful team of folks that I work with at the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet and here at KHS who back me up in that work. So uh, I feel well supported, and uh, I try and do my best to make sure that every single one of those airplanes up in the sky gets the attention it needs. Great. Do you know if most other states have similar programs or is it unique to just a few? Because I have seen them in other states. Yeah. So I can't give a hard number of how many states have marker programs, but I do know that they're pretty common. And oftentimes when I travel to other states, if I'm with friends or family, I will say, hey, we need to walk over across the street. There's a historical marker there. And I came on board in my role last August. It has been um, just like drinking from a fire hose in terms of all the knowledge that I've taken on since that time. And I will watch my friends or family's eyes glaze over as I'm there trying to identify (laughs) which manufacturer made that marker and analyzing the set screws that hold the sign to the post and kind of looking at the formatting of the marker but yeah, it's it's fun to see what other states are doing. A lot of um, local communities also have their own marker programs. So if you're traveling in places like Nashville or Charleston or New Orleans or Winston-Salem, North Carolina, you're going to see city-sponsored 
marker programs as well. Um, there's also a really great organization out of New York. It's a nonprofit organization called the Pomeroy Foundation, and they have their own uh, marker programs that they help out various um, places around the country with. So two of my favorites that they do, one is called Hungry for History, which is all about foodways and culinary culture. And the other one is called Legends and Lore. So if you're somebody who really gets into Bigfoot sightings and UFOs and stuff like that, um, topics that might not be the best fit for a state government-run program, there's a possibility that the Legends and Lore program can uh, help you out. Nice. Yeah, I haven't heard of that. How about uh, telling us a little bit about what does it take to get a new marker established and erected? Absolutely, yeah. So I always tell people when they contact me for a historical marker, um, or oftentimes I'll even be out you know, at a restaurant or a bar, and somebody will say to me, you need a marker for X topic. And I will very uh, politely and in a friendly way say, you need to help me put in a marker for that topic. <laughs> so we are a community-driven program, meaning I don't get to decide a topic that I'm really interested in, I'm going to put that marker in. We wait for the public to come to us and tell us what markers they're interested in seeing. And then we work with um, the points of contact for those nominations to go through a very rigorous process. And if the nomination is approved by a committee of history professionals from across the state, then it's my job to coordinate everything that goes into the markers creation. So I always tell people that just because you nominate a topic doesn't mean a marker is automatically going to be approved for it. Um, it is a competitive process, and each year we receive many dozens more nominations than the limited number that we're able to approve. So we try to make sure that every marker that we're putting in the ground going forward lives up to our high standards and meets the objectives and the guidelines of the KHS program. Um, that means that the point of contact for the nomination often has to do quite a bit of research. They also have to track down letters of support for the topic. Um, and those letters of support come from community members and organizations. That helps us to see that there really is a groundswell of support for commemorating that history and that somebody isn't reaching out to us for a marker that's really just a you know very specific pet project or vanity project that doesn't have a lot of people behind it. It usually takes us over a year to get a marker designed. Their name is Siwa Studios, that's S-E-W-A-H, and I can send you some stuff on how they actually make the markers. I tell people that every marker they make is an individual work of art, meaning that they set all the letters by hand, uh, before I came on board in my job, I actually thought all of the markers were bronze. Uh, they're not bronze, they're aluminum. And uh, they go through an electrostatic painting process. And then the individual letters are covered with a gold enamel. So it is very painstaking work that they do up at Siwa Studios. And in my opinion, Siwa makes some of the best historical markers in the nation. Uh, they actually hold the contracts for quite a few states around the country. And uh, it's a process that can't be rushed. It takes them about a week to make an individual marker. And um, they have so much demand right now for their services that it takes about six months from the time an order gets sent 
sent in to the time that the marker gets sent back to Kentucky. At that point, it's going to end up in one of our 12 district barns with the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet. And I work with our liaisons there and with the nomination point of contact to figure out the best site for where the marker can go. And lots of different things factor into site selection. One is, is it publicly accessible? Uh, We're not going to put a marker way up on private land where the general public can't see it. So preferably near a place where there is a turnoff, where people can stop and actually get out and read the marker. Um, I'm sure, Greg, you're like me. You have driven past markers going 65, 70 miles per hour and uh, (laughs) kind of wishing you had more time to stop and read it. Definitely, Um, yeah. So, yeah, if I am driving somewhere and I have the time, I will pull off and read them. But we also make sure that there are no underground utilities running underneath the soil because nobody wants to sink a seven-foot aluminum post into the ground and hit fiber optic cable. <laughs> right. to ruin a few days uh, for folks. And um, I also tell people that we're not just going to sink the marker in the ground and run away. We want to make sure that the location works out well for everybody involved. Um, I'm actually working on a marker in Berea right now that has been up for several decades but it is blocking the flow of access into a um, building. So we're working with the property owners to actually move the marker several yards down so it won't impede that access. Hmm. So there's a lot of logistical coordination that goes into creating a marker. Another reason why we tend to only put up a handful of new ones each year is because each new marker that we create takes about 40 hours of work on my end to process all the paperwork, uh, write the marker text, because we do that in-house here at KHS, and then run that by the point of contact for feedback. But we control the narrative. Um, And, yeah, there's a lot of logistical coordination and financial paperwork with the uh, foundry and just the state government. Uh, The markers, at least for the next few cycles, are fully funded by the Kentucky General Assembly, meaning that new markers are paid for by the state government. Um, And what I really love about that is that it removed this system where different community groups or individuals had to raise the money themselves to have a new marker erected. By taking that out of the equation and switching to a public funding model, it really leveled the playing field. So anybody in the state who has a topic they're really interested in can see it Uh, hopefully make its way to a historical marker if it meets the standards of the program. And the final thing I'll say on that before I come up for air, (laughs) um, as we are looking to the future and thinking about the long-term sustainability and longevity of the KHS historical marker program, we need to be good custodians of the markers that we've inherited, but we've also kind of streamlined our objectives in recent years following a big internal inventory that we did of all the markers back in 2021. Um, And under the new standards, we're really looking to see that the topics that people nominate rise to the level of statewide and or national importance or historical significance. And that's not to say that topics with a great local interest aren't historically significant, But local history, we often find it's better if local folks do that commemorative work 
Um, the topics that are a better fit for our program are ones that will have broad appeal and really intersect with some of these larger um, statewide or national historical narratives. A lot of work. A it, lot it, of information, Greg. <laughs> so sorry. No, that's what I wanted to know. And it's a lot more involved than, you know, at first glance you would think. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And like you, uh, I actually thought they were not bronze, but I thought they were brass. So that's interesting that they're actually aluminum. Right. And that is um, a lot easier for the foundry to manage in terms of pouring them. And they are a little more durable when it comes to weather, but uh, you and I have both driven pla- past plenty of markers uh, that are looking a little shabby after having been out on the landscape for 60 years or so. Right. So, um, yeah, refurb work is another problem that uh, I have been working through. Well, I guess that's job security for you, huh? <laughs> uh, yes, there will always be more work than uh, I am able to do, and I'm an office of one, I would love to have more people uh, on staff, but you kind of work with what you have. And like I said, I do have a more extended team of people that I work with here at KHS, uh, but I am the point person for the historical marker program. So, uh, yeah, that metaphor of being an air traffic controller is certainly apt. Well, this question might be a little unfair, and you don't have to answer it. I guess it's kind of like asking if you have a favorite child, but uh, do you have a favorite marker? Um, so when you and I had spoken previously, you asked me this question and I remember thinking, Ooh, this is hard. Um, and there are two different ways I can answer it. So one of them is going to be thematic and the other one is going to be, uh, personal. Okay. So thematically, if you search our comprehensive database that's available through our website, um, which is history.ky.gov. If you go to the Historical Markers webpage, you will um, see a link to search the database. And you can do a topic search for trees, a subject search. And we've actually put up about a half dozen markers through the decades, just about really interesting trees around Kentucky. And I love them all. The one that I think has the best title is Magnificent Pen Oak. That's located in Lewis County up in northeastern Kentucky. And I just love that people in these communities cared enough about these massive historic trees that they wanted a marker to help passersby understand how remarkable they were. The thematic answer to that uh, favorite marker question. I haven't come across a tree. I'm sorry, Jim, I interrupted you. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I I haven't come across a, a tree marker yet. I look forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking at them here on my computer. We have one in Davis, Lewis, um, Monroe, Madison, and actually a second one in Madison. So they really love their trees in the Richmond area. <laughs> um, but yeah, thinking about my favorite markers on a personal level. So the best part of my job is getting to work the new marker dedication events. And as I had mentioned, it often takes over a year for a new marker to get uh, nominated, designed, and then installed. And the culmination of that process is a dedication event. Uh, When I came on board last August, some of the first things that I had to do in that capacity were be the Kentucky Historical Society's official representative at three dedication events. Uh, I did one for a 
Vietnam-era Medal of Honor recipient who was killed in combat. Uh, his name was J.C. Paul. And I worked that event. I worked another one in Midway for the Midway Freedmen School marker. And then I did a third one in Louisville in Jefferson County for the Sisters of Mercy and their 150 years of uh, religious service and community outreach in the Jefferson County area. And it's almost like there's a festival atmosphere at these events. Uh, you have various dignitaries, local politicians, speakers, historians, um, all sorts of folks who come together to celebrate or commemorate the topic that is being addressed on the marker. And it's a really good way for the community to show their investment in those topics and what those things mean to them. Um, the one that I worked for J.C. Paul, um, who was a Lance Corporal killed in combat in Vietnam, what was remarkable about that event is that it, in a way, it was almost like a funeral held for this young person several decades later. It was a very moving emotional event. And um, there were, if I remember correctly, over 100 people who came. And it was there on the courthouse lawn. And um, people talked about their memories of him, if they had a family connection. Uh, we had quite a few veterans who showed up to commemorate him and celebrate and acknowledge his sacrifice. There was an honor guard there. So uh, I was on the verge of tears. I know other people were very emotional at that event. And it really shows the best of what the Kentucky Historical Society's Historical Marker Program is able to achieve by helping people to commemorate history in their own communities. Wow, that sounds amazing. It's really uh, great to be a part of something like that, I imagine. Absolutely. Jim, do you have a set number of markers that you can create each year, or, or is that just kind of float around with all the other logistics that you've talked about? Um, yeah, so it's definitely more complicated than having a set number. Um, as we select how many we're going to do each year, and I will say for the 2023 cycle, uh, we have not had that conversation yet. But first and foremost, we need to make sure that any markers that are approved by an external committee of history professionals from across the state, those markers need to live up to the standards of the program. And that means that they're going to be very well documented. Um, they make clear what their historical significance is to the people of Kentucky and they have a lot of community support. Um, we also have money that has been budgeted for this purpose by the Kentucky General Assembly. So I need to make sure that I'm using that money well on behalf of Kentucky's taxpayers. And it does mean that we need to be a little more selective uh, than maybe we've been in years past. But I think it's what is for the best for the program long term. I know in 2022, we um, approved a dozen new markers, and we have some refurbishments or replacements for missing markers that we've been working on as well. I do not know yet how many will get approved in 2023. I do not expect, though, that it would be substantially more than what we've done in the past. What is challenging on my end is that we can tell that there's a lot of pent-up demand from the pandemic years for historical marker 
um, mm, yeah. you know, localized programs around the state, which means we have to make very difficult decisions when people submit nominations to us. And um, in 2023, we received three times as many letters of interest to get the process rolling as we did in 2022. And wow. I'm already, uh, yeah, it's, I'm gratified to see that there is such interest in celebrating and commemorating local history around the state, but it makes my job uh, pretty complicated in terms of handling the messaging on that and directing people to other resources if their nomination is not approved this cycle. Um, One of the things that I am actually relieved about uh, that's related to my job I do not serve on the committee of history professionals who evaluate all the many nominations we receive. So what that does is it frees me up to be a consultant and coach for the nomination points of contact. They can reach out to me with their questions that they have, and I can help them to position their nomination packet as well as possible, and then not feel like I'm putting my thumb on the scale. But uh, yeah, it, it can be difficult to kind of stand back and let the process work its way um, as it's intended to. And as I said before, I'm glad that I'm not the one who has to make the difficult decisions. But I'm grateful to the history professionals who serve on that committee, and I believe that they are making really wise decisions, and I'm grateful to them for that work that goes into it because it's not an easy task. I'm certain of that. There's so many aspects to this program which are beneficial to everyone, but what do you think might be the biggest benefit of having this program in Kentucky? I love this question, and I was actually thinking about um, you know, this whole idea earlier this morning. Why do we have a marker program? I was very fortunate that I grew up in a history-minded household, meaning both of my parents had been history majors when they were in college. And when I was a kid, when my friends would be taking vacations to the beach or Disney World, uh, we were all piling in the, well, it was a station wagon at that point. Uh, (laughs) I'm showing my age. I remember Um, those days, yes. Yeah, we would pile in the station wagon and we would go visit Civil War battlefields or we would drive up to Boston and check out the Freedom Trail. Or one summer we even... um, checked out the baseball, basketball, and football halls of fame all in one trip. And growing up, I loved doing that stuff, but I remember feeling as a kid, history happens elsewhere and not feeling like Kentucky had a lot of history. And um, I was clearly wrong, and I wish I had done more stuff in my own backyard. What I love about the historical marker program and what I think it where its value lies for people around the state is that whenever they encounter these historical markers, it gives them a sense that history happened here. Um, History had a time, it had a place, and it's on the same soil that you and I walk over every day. So um, I live here in Frankfort, Kentucky now, uh, which has the fourth highest number of markers in the state. And I can't go for a walk down the block here in downtown Frankfurt without encountering several markers. And it definitely transports me back into the past and helps me to envision what the town looked like during that time. 
And I think the other value of the historical marker program is that it meets people where they are and helps them to envision what the past was like, have a better sense of how they fit into that narrative here in the present. And if we're doing our jobs well, we are helping to educate the people of Kentucky um, about their past in a way that gives them the tools they need to handle whatever challenges are coming down the road in the future. Um, so I think that even for people who uh, sometimes tell me, hey, I really didn't like history when I was in school, the markers meet them in a different way. And it's rare that I find people who don't have something they love about history, even if they didn't do well in history classes back in grade school. Um, I often have people reach out to me because they're interested in genealogy, um, they're interested in old cemeteries, they're interested in things that their families and friends and communities have some link to. Um, so the marker program helps us to do that uh, and to meet that need. It is the most recognizable brand of the Kentucky Historical Society. And um, just to add one final point on all of this, you know, I'm a citizen of Kentucky, and even when I'm off the clock, sometimes I'll stop if I'm out in public and watch other people interacting with the markers. And I'll kind of stand off to the side and watch them discussing what they see on the marker, or sometimes they'll say, wow, that thing's kind of leaning. I wonder what happened there. And, you know, maybe there's a little <laughs> fender bender, and it uh, kind of knocked it off kilter slightly. Uh, that's always a little more agonizing for me. But it is fascinating to watch people in various communities around the state see these um, signs and be grateful that, that the public has a chance to be educated about so many of these remarkable topics in ways that never involve stepping into a classroom. Um, essentially, Kentucky is the classroom, and the marker program helps us to teach people around the state about their past. Well, that's a great perspective, and I, I couldn't agree more with you. In fact, uh, I've found that people that think they don't like history, there's always things of historical value that they do like. They just don't think of it as history. They think history is just a list of dates. Yes, yes, and it's so much more. And one of the reasons that I help coach um, people who want to nominate a topic for a historical marker is that historical thinking is like a muscle. You need to kind of work it to make it stronger. And, um, you know, somebody may say, hey, I want a historical marker for this old house in my community, and that's awesome but I work with them to help them nail certain things like the so what statement, meaning why should other people care about this um, if they don't know anything about it? How does it fit in with some of these larger themes in Kentucky history? And um, yeah, historical research is certainly a skill set that uh, not everybody has. So even just finding out what resources are out there can be a challenge. And uh, we have a remarkable research library here at the History Center in downtown Frankfurt. And um, it doesn't cost much to visit at all. And we have a staff on site that is here to help people uh, navigate through whatever research question or issue they're looking into and track down materials that will be of use to them. So we really hope the public will make use of that service 
Uh, it's our state government working for you. Absolutely. Could you tell us about the museums associated with the KHS? Uh, sure. So the Kentucky Historical Society, again, it's a state government agency. It is based here in Frankfurt, and we manage three different sites in downtown Frankfurt, all within walking distance of each other. So the first one uh, is the building where I work. It's the Thomas Clark History Center, and that houses, in addition to our administrative offices, it has a research library, it has an archive, and it has a uh, classroom area. We deal with a lot of school groups, and we love that. Uh, we see a lot of fourth graders who come through here um, as they're learning about Kentucky history as part of their school curriculum. And then we also have a really nice museum space. Our permanent exhibit is called A Kentucky Journey, and uh, you're going to learn a little bit about Kentucky through the ages. We have phenomenal artifacts there, uh, things that you'll kind of round the corner and see this breathtaking quilt or Abraham Lincoln's pocket watch or a 1960s car that the governor used to drive. Um, I love seeing those things. And then we also have a temporary exhibit area. Right now we're working hard on getting an exhibit designed and installed that will be opening later this year. And it is called Our Stories, Our Service. It's going to be a commemoration and a celebration of Kentucky's women veterans and look at their military service through the ages. So we hope that the public will keep an eye out for that when it opens and come see us here in Frankfurt. So that's the first site. The second site that we manage is the Old State Capitol. And um, oftentimes when people think of Frankfurt, they're thinking of the new state capital that's across the Kentucky River from where we are. But our old state capital dates back to the 1830s, I believe. And um, it's a beautiful space to walk through and get a sense of Kentucky's early political history. And then the third space that we manage is housed in the old state arsenal, which is, uh, I think it dates to the 1850s, if I'm not mistaken. And today that is the Kentucky Military History Museum. I uh, actually took a few months to get up there on the hill to see it when I started here at KHS, and I walked in the doors and looked around, and my mind was blown at the quality of the collections and some of the remarkable artifacts that we have there. So I think it truly is a hidden gem here in Frankfurt, and um, you're going to learn about the service of Kentuckians going all the way back to the 18th century and see a lot of really cool things. So those are the three sites that we manage, and we love it when people come here to Frankfurt to check them out. Well, I certainly have enjoyed uh, what I've seen of them, and I'm looking forward to seeing more. Yeah, um, the invitation is open. We hope you and your listeners will come visit us in Frankfurt. And um, if you go to our website, which again is history.ky.gov, you can get a good sense of what resources we have available, both for on-site visits and for people around the state who uh, can't make the trip to see us in Frankfurt. So uh, we try to be the go-to service for people who are interested in learning more about Kentucky's history. And um, again, my job as the community engagement coordinator is to help direct people to resources when they have a history issue or a problem and don't really know where to start. So 
those are the emails and phone calls that uh, I am here to field. And do you want to give your email out for anybody that's interested in contacting you about the historical marker program? Absolutely. So again, my name is Jim Siever, and I'm the Community Engagement Coordinator here at the Kentucky Historical Society. My email is james.siever, and that's spelled S-E-A-V as in Victor, E-R. So james.siever at ky.gov. Awesome. I really appreciate you talking to me today, Jim, and we've learned a lot uh, a whole lot more to the the markers than you know I ever realized. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into it, and uh, a lot of moving parts. And I'm so grateful to folks around the state that I get to work with to get new markers installed. And I am also incredibly grateful when uh, they have a little patience with me when I'm managing communications or working my way through some of the state government logistics because uh, it is a slow kind of lumbering joggernauts uh, to work through some of the bureaucracy. But the work that we're doing is good. The work we're doing is important. And uh, we're so grateful to all the partners who help us in that endeavor. That's great. I don't want to keep you from your important work any longer. So uh, with that, I'll say thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you around the museum. Absolutely. Thanks for having me today, Greg. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right. Wasn't that a great conversation? I very much appreciate the wealth of information that Jim brought us today. And he gave us his email at the end of the podcast, but I'll also include that for you in the show notes, along with the web address for the Kentucky Historical Society. And also, I'd like to mention, too, that they have a um, Explore Kentucky app that is available on both Apple and Android platforms, and it's a very well-done app, and I use it all the time as part of my research in bringing you these episodes, so I encourage you to check that out. So with that, we'll close this episode out. Uh, God bless you fine folks, and I'll see you next time.